smuggler's route. Every day, hundreds of pickup trucks carry goods to this camp. It's one of many dotted along the border. At this border post, all goods are hand-carried by Iranians into Iran. They call According them backpackers. the latest report from the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, most of what's sold in Iran comes from Afghanistan and Pakistan, across a land border that stretches the entire length of the country. Now that's nearly 2,000 kilometers of often untamed territory, the Wild West of South and Central Asia. Pickup trucks jam these dirt roads in Baluchistan. The border dividing this remote, wild region is of little significance to these smugglers. They see themselves as Baluchis. Goods flow freely and illegally from Iranian to Pakistani Baluchistan. One of the most lucrative products is diesel. Often, the seller and buyer don't even see or meet with each other. For example, I call a friend in the Zarhidlam, capital of Sistan, and the Baluchistan province. I tell him that I want 500 kilograms. The guy goes to the border and buy 500 kilograms from the border smugglers. The guy gives the drugs to a truck driver and tells him to leave at a certain point, at a certain place and at a certain time. This way, when the drivers get caught, they don't know who the drugs are. This story was told by Arya, a police chief in Iran, and it tells us how Organized drug smugglers use poor citizens on the periphery of their country to move illicit drugs over a porous border. The reliance of illicit smuggling for these communities is just one part of a much larger story. Today, it's a story of how the illicit economy has become intertwined within the licit economy of the Iranian state. But it's also a story of unaccountable institutions, corruption, an international agreement hanging by a thread, nuclear weapon proliferation, chance of death to America, terrorist financing, proxy wars, power and patronage, seized oil tankers, elapsed arms embargo, missile attacks delivered by the apparent hand of God, great power politics, a US presidential election, and crippling economic sanctions that have helped illicit economies become an entrenched part of Iran's political, economic, and cultural life. This is Deep Dive, exploring organized crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Established in the wake of the 1979 Islamic Revolution, the Revolutionary Guards are often described as a parallel government within Iran. It is clear that the JCPOA has not ended Iran's nuclear ambitions, nor did it deter its quest for a regional hegemony. Iran's leaders saw a deal as the starting gun for the march across the Middle East. The IRGC controls much of the country's economy and wields more power and influence than the army itself. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. But I think President Trump, uh, after watching uh, the crowds yesterday, must stop threatening. This people will be further enraged by his threats, and his threats will not frighten us. 
But what he's showing something, he's showing to the international community that he has no respect for international law, that he is prepared to commit war crimes. Today, the United States is continuing to build its maximum pressure campaign against the Iranian regime. I am announcing our intent to designate the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, including its Quds Force, as a foreign terrorist organization. In Two weeks ago, President Trump terminated the United States participation in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, more commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal. President Trump withdrew from the deal for a simple reason. It failed to guarantee the safety of the American people from the risk created by the leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran. France, Germany and the United Kingdom are gravely concerned by the increased tensions in the Gulf that were further heightened after the downing of the U.S. drone by Iran on the 20th of June. And sent private signals of deterrence and de-escalation to Iran. And find a way to avoid the onrush of war. Find a way to avoid the onrush of war. Find a way to avoid the onrush of war. Welcome to the podcast. Today we're discussing a new report from the GI called Under the Shadow, Illicit Economies in Iran. And I'm delighted to say that Alexander Soderholm, an international drug policy field researcher with a focus on Iran and the Middle East, has been given the task of going through the report for us. Alex, welcome to the Deep Dive Exploring Organised Crime. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. Now, you've had a chance to get your teeth into this pretty comprehensive report from the GI. Could you give us a brief outline of what this report is? Absolutely. So I think the report does a really good job in terms of showcasing some of the complexities faced by both the international community and the Iranian state in managing the challenges associated with illicit economies in Iran. The report does justice in terms of showcasing some of the complexities in the Iranian political system and how that impacts on the growth and the control of the list economies in Iran and perhaps the lack of the state's willingness to deal with some of these issues. It also does well, I think, in terms of showcasing the the challenges faced by the Iranian people who are often stuck between a rock and a hard place, who have experienced decades of crippling sanctions, the disproportionate negative impact of which have been felt by marginalized and vulnerable Iranians rather than their intended targets in terms of Iranian government officials and Iranian institutions. And I think over the past couple of years in particular, since the US withdrawal from the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and reimposition of unilateral sanctions, we can really see how how much the international community's engagement and approach towards Iran has an impact on the growth of illicit economies in the country. An important aspect of the report that I took away is the descriptions of the complexities of the power structure of the Iranian state. So you have the power centred with the supreme leader Ayatollah Khamenei and the institutions he directly and indirectly controls. And I only want to mention a couple of the more prominent ones related to this report, like the Council of Guardians. They basically vet officials running for public office and approve legislation from parliament. Something we'll come on to later in the podcast when discussing anti-money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism. Then the other is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, who are separate from the armed forces and were originally created to protect the revolution and political system. 
But what's clear from the report is that since 1979, it's expanded into all aspects of Iranian society. They control a huge number of companies, such as GORB. They've also been accused of being involved in illicit activities such as smuggling, and the report even questions whether there is, and I quote, constitutionally mandated corruption, which we can come on to later. So the question is, what impact does this constellation of power have on the illicit economies? Again, as you would expect from a state with profound authoritarian aspects and tendencies, where networks of patron-client relationships stem from those most closely aligned with the supreme leader and his acolytes, corruption in Iran is really rampant. In my own work and research in Iran, it's become very clear that to get anywhere in Iranian society, you need to have party or a faction. And Iranians call this party bazi, which is a, well, the best translation is really faction play or faction game. So with the immense pressure that the Iranian economy has been under due to a mix of both domestic and foreign pressures, the political economic elite has been chasing really the new grift ever since the inception of the Islamic Republic in 1979. And this has created a culture of lawlessness and impunity for those in power and those with connections, while the spectre of punishment is wielded forcefully against those outside the circles of political economic influence. So on the one hand, you have a state that is all too willing to allow corrupt entities to engage in various list enterprises, both domestically and internationally, in order to shore up support and remain in power. And on the other hand, you have a populace that on the large does not trust the state and who have suffered dramatically from poverty, unemployment and insecurity particularly since the U.S. has withdrawn from the nuclear deal. So for many vulnerable and marginalized Iranians, particularly ethnic minorities and rural border communities, there is really no other choice but to engage in illicit economies, whether as cross-border smugglers, drug or fuel traffickers, and so on and so forth. So why are illicit economies so central to Iranians, including the Iranian state itself? So I think there's really a convergence of domestic and international and regional factors that have pushed the state into a corner where there is little option but to rely on the list economies for revenue generation and to shore up political support. So on the one hand, you have domestic mismanagement of the economy, politics and society, which has left corruption to grow rampant over the past four decades. The patronage networks that have formed are reliant on corrupt practices by giving traders preferential access to foreign currency or subsidized rates but also state subsidies or giving them access to particular smuggling routes, among others, which has created domestic political economic power networks that in effect control large swaths of the Iranian economy. And so to consolidate the grasp on power, these networks need to generate funds, which are to an extent used to sponsor their proxies in the region, which has led to large public outcries by Iranians. So considering that the Iranian real is now considered one of the least valuable currencies globally, The way to generate revenues for these political economic power networks is to participate in and facilitate illicit transnational flows of goods and resources. And the situation has undoubtedly been worsened by decades of sanctions and what Dr. Kenneth Pollack calls the policy of containment, which has been the default strategy of the United States in particular towards Iran since 1979. So what challenges do the Iranian state face in controlling illicit economies and how important is it that they do so for their own survival? So I think there's there's tension within the state because there's a recognition that something needs to be done to stamp out corruption and the activities of you know, rogue elements within the state who are engaging in fuel smuggling, but also potentially drug smuggling and illicit currency transactions, etc. But then there's also recognition that this is really key to the survival of that elite, of the state. The state needs to give free reign to some of its clients 
to pursue these activities because they need their political and economic support in order to remain in power. So the Iranian state really has a long road ahead if it wants to seriously deal with corruption and illicit economies in the country. And of course, corruption is at the heart of all illicit activities. Have we seen any examples of the Iranian state trying to combat corruption? There has recently been somewhat of a push towards clamping down on blatant corruption and mismanagement. But it's unclear what will come of these investigations and if they are solely for show or if the state actually wants to rein in on corrupt elements. As the report outlines, the debacle over the use of the Payam airport, for example, as a smuggling hub by the IRGC in the mid-2000s, only produced one arrest, and this was largely considered as a cover-up. There have been numerous other examples since of similar unsatisfactory attempts at addressing corruption by state officials and entities linked to the Supreme Leader. And what about more recently? Since 2019, there have been a push by the Iranian judiciary for a so-called anti-corruption campaign, which has generated several arrests of family members of politicians and military leaders. Among others, this has led to the arrest of Hossein Feridun, who is the younger brother of President Hassan Rouhani. He was sentenced to five years in prison in late 2019 due to taking bribes from a steel conglomerate. But considering the state's track record in allowing some corruption and mismanagement to persist while clamping down on others, it is unclear to what extent this campaign is politically motivated to remove those associated with Rouhani and the reformists or moderates, and or if this is fueled by public sentiment of Iranians who have had enough of corruption and mismanagement in the country. And ultimately, these limited trials and cases have really done very little to address the deeper problem at hand, which is that the power networks that exist in the Iranian state are really reliant on fraudulently obtained resources in order to remain in power, and whether that is from corrupt dealings or facilitating illicit activities. On the other hand, again, you have a population that is under overwhelming economic pressures due to the collapse of the Iranian real. In the illicit drugs field, we have come quite far in terms of understanding the predicament faced by rural, vulnerable and marginalized communities, who often have no choice but to grow drug crops in order to survive in environments where no viable illicit business alternatives exist. And what we do know is that Iran is one of the most important transit countries of Afghan opiates globally and also methamphetamines as well, as Iran lies on the Balkan and southern smuggling routes. But along the eastern border in the province of Sistan and Baluchistan, you have the Baluch ethnic community, and that community spans across the border into Afghanistan and Pakistan. Tell us about them and their role in cross-border smuggling. Up until relatively recently, these people had special permits in terms of crossing the border and meeting their family members, etc. So they're also one of the poorest minorities in Iran, if not the poorest minority in Iran, with extremely high levels of unemployment and poverty. The Iranian government, meanwhile, has done very little to lift these communities out of poverty over the past couple of decades. And of course, there also exists another fault line, which is that the Baluch are Sunni and the Iranian government is, is Shia, or the Iran as a state is Shia-dominated. For, for the Baluch, they're fantastic cross-border smugglers. So they, they've had to evolve into becoming great cross-border smugglers over the past few decades because of having been left on the peripheries of the country with very little support in terms of you know, infrastructure projects or education projects, etc. So there's still very high illiteracy levels among this community of people. So what they do is then involve themselves in various informal and illicit economies when there is no other option. And that does not necessarily mean that people are directly involved in moving drugs across the border, but they could be involved in, for example, storing the drugs for, for criminal organizations for a period of time. They're also providing other types of services to the criminal organizations or to the drug traffickers that operate in these areas. 
And what role does the drug economy play for the rural, vulnerable and marginalised Iranians like the Baluch living on the peripheries of the country? When we think about the, the flow of drugs, there is a tendency in the international debate, I think, and in the policy debate to think of it as a very top-down, rigid kind of organisational structure of how things happen. Whereas actually, as, as we see in Iran and, and in many other places of the world, is that it's, it's extremely horizontal with lots of different cells operating relatively independently from each other and producing and providing services to each other within that horizontal structure. And that means that the illicit drug supply chain becomes incredibly redistributive, actually. The spillovers have a massive impact on these communities, and these communities really live off the spillovers from the drug trafficking chain, whether they're directly or indirectly involved. And on the west of Iran, I mean, you have the Kurds, and I think Tom Westcott and Afshin Esmaili in their report for the Global Initiative in early 2019, they talked about the, the role of the Kurds in Iraqi Kurdistan and in western Iran in terms of smuggling goods, fuels, resources, but also drugs and other illegal goods across that border, and how important that cross-border smuggling trade was for the survival of these communities. So we know quite a lot about this, but the Iranian government and, and governments in the region seem relatively reluctant or unable to actually lift these people out of poverty and insecurity, which is the only sustainable and long-term way to make sure that they're not going to fall into these cycles of dependencies on the list economies. And finally, I wanted to turn to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, who, as we said earlier on, play a significant role in Iranian political life. Their growth really started when they were allowed to involve themselves in the reconstruction of Iran after the Iran-Iraq war. What does the report say about how the IRGC fit into the illicit economies within Iran? The report does outline instances where it can be said beyond a reasonable doubt that the IRGC was involved in smuggling or illicit enterprises, such as the Payam airport incident, the use of invisible jetties or piers in the south of the country for smuggling of goods and resources, potentially drugs, and also the goods force activities in money laundering and producing counterfeit banknotes. Having said that, the absence of willingness to investigate those who are close to the highest levels of power, i.e. the supreme leader, renders it very difficult to precisely understand the role of the IRGC in illicit economies. As the report outlines, there are indeed widespread accusations of the IRGC's involvement in drug flows, in the smuggling of goods and resources, in corruption, etc. However, it is unclear if this is instigated by cells within the organization, i.e. by specific leaders or officials or if it is indeed an organization-wide accepted practice that basically anything can be done or anything that can be done to strengthen the IRGC, its patrons, and ultimately the place of the supreme leader is permissible and should be pursued. Yeah, and I suppose the next question is, given the position the IRGC finds itself in now and its growth under the supreme leader, where the report has described it as an economic and political powerhouse, what happens to the IRGC in the Iranian state after Khomeini? Well, look, we'll come back to you, Alex, and that question later on in the podcast, if that's okay. Yes, okay. That was Alexander Soderholm, an international drug policy field researcher with a focus on Iran and the Middle East. Now let's look at how sanctions have impacted the illicit economy in Iran and Iranian society more broadly. The report highlights a really interesting example of how the Iranian state evades sanctions through a national cryptocurrency. 
In 2018, the head of the civil defense organization of Iran allegedly stated that cryptocurrencies can help bypass certain sanctions through untraceable banking operations, and fears have been raised that this move by the Iranian state towards cryptocurrency could be used to finance terrorist groups in the region. And there is more on this in the report. But aside from this, Iran has been the focus of international attention in relation to its role in global money laundering and the financing of terrorist groups. So what role does Iran play in facilitating illicit financial flows and supporting the illicit financial networks in the region and globally? Catherine Bauer is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and a former U.S. Treasury official. So over time, Iran has deployed a variety of methodologies to facilitate illicit financial flows and support illicit financial networks in the region and globally. I think you have to remember that Iran has been subject to U.S. sanctions, you know, unilateral U.S. sanctions, a primary embargo on Iran since the Islamic Revolution. So these methodologies, as sanctions pressure has strengthened and then waned, they have changed the ways that they engage in illicit finance. To disguise their involvement in transactions, as they become more constrained in their access to the international financial system, Iran increasingly employed front companies and complex corporate ownership, falsifying documents, exploiting exchange house and other weakly regulated on-ramps to the international financial system. To evade U.S. energy sanctions, Iran has engaged in deceptive practices to disguise the origin of its oil, such as ship-to-ship transfers and turning off of GPS tracking devices that hinder the ability to track such illicit trade, but also violate international laws because of safety concerns on the high seas. More recently, as Iran has struggled to access foreign exchange reserves since the re-implementation of U.S. sanctions, Iran has sought to gain access to foreign currency through a variety of complex schemes, such as exploiting currency exchange markets in the UAE to acquire bulk cash in U.S. dollars. The Central Bank of Iran also, within the last few years, directed another scheme to move millions of U.S. dollars and other currency through Iraqi banks to support Hezbollah and Hamas. The reason that Iran needs to access hard currency, besides its needs to finance trade and defend the value of its own currency, it needs access to hard currency because its proxies won't take Iranian real. Indeed, in Yemen, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, which is a part of the a kind of expeditionary force that's part of the IRGC, counterfeited Yemeni currency to support its activities in that country. So I think we've seen that Iran will engage in whatever kind of practices it needs to in order to get its support to proxies. Looking at your experiences as a former U.S. Treasury official, can you explain some of the issues that you actually looked at and also the key challenges the international community faces in curtailing Iran's influence and projection of power regionally? And of course, this is specifically to do with terrorist financing and IFFs. In my role at the Treasury Department, we looked at both Iran's illicit financial practices and how to use sanctions to highlight Iran's illicit conduct, financial or otherwise, and then used these Treasury actions, whether they were sanctions or regulatory actions, to build a platform as a platform to build multilateral and international support to constrain or constrict Iran's access to the global economy. So what this looked like in practice, as I mentioned, the U.S. had had sanctions on Iran since the Islamic Revolution, basically. But despite these sanctions, Iran was not isolated from the international financial system. 
So what the U.S. Treasury did kind of at the beginning of the previous round of sanctions was to deploy a set of conduct-based sanctions, whether these were based on Iranian support for terrorism or Iranian proliferation of weapons of mass destruction later because of human rights abuses, etc. And this highlighted Iran's bad behavior, as well as highlighting both to foreign governments and to the foreign financial sector, the real and reputational risks of continuing to do business with Iran. So through this initiative, the Treasury was able to garner multilateral and international support for a sanctions campaign that constrained Iran's access to the international financial system. Likewise, the Treasury Department also looked to leverage international best practices on counter-illicit finance to push for better controls, both regionally and globally, to build what we call the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing regime, the AML-CFT regime, so that countries and regulators in the region, in the Middle East, bordering on Iran and elsewhere, would be better equipped to detect and disrupt Iranian illicit financial activity. So how has Iran's support and sponsorship of armed groups and terrorist organizations evolved since 2016? And how do you see this issue developing in the coming years? So even before the U.S. exited the agreement, um, which had exited the nuclear agreement in 2018, it was clear that Iran had not moderated its provocative behavior in the region. It continued to conduct missile tests. Its arms transfers and other support for the Houthis in Yemen became more clear and additional evidence came to light. And of course, ongoing support for the Assad regime in Syria and Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. Indeed, the scope of the nuclear deal was limited. It was just that. It was a nuclear deal limited to constraints on Iran's nuclear program in return for relief from nuclear-related international and U.S. and EU sanctions. Since the U.S. withdrawal from the agreement, Iran has continued, if not escalated, its destabilizing activity in the region, in some cases as part of a counter-pressure strategy, but also in others, it's just exploited the ongoing instability and ongoing conflicts in the region to advance its broader interests. Of course, after the Trump administration pulled out of the JCPOA, it reimposed sanctions in what's called the maximum pressure campaign. What are the objectives of those current sanctions on Iran and are they meeting their goals? So on one hand, it's designed to compel Iran to renegotiate and on the other hand, deny Iran access to the revenue it needs to continue to develop its strategic capabilities or to intervene in the region. So, so to try to degrade its ability to access revenue towards those ends and also disrupt its, its ability to, to be able to access the international financial system or shipping activities or otherwise. But I think that there have been times that the messaging has not necessarily been so clear. So I think this, this lack of, of clarity on objectives is one thing that has undermined the effectiveness of this approach. But what we have seen with the snapback of U.S. sanctions and this maximum pressure approach, which is a really vigorous implementation of those authorities and adding additional, it has generated considerable economic and financial pressure on Iran, but it has not created that same dynamic that led Iran to negotiations previously. And I think that's in part because the multilateral component that isolated Iran diplomatically and politically is absent. But again, this is also because the objectives of the policy are unclear. 
And the messaging to Iran is unclear. If you think there's a chance that the objective of the policy is to undermine the stability of the regime, it makes it hard to consider modifying your behavior and entering into negotiations where you might need to make concessions. Some really valuable insights, Catherine. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. That was Catherine Bauer, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and a former US Treasury official. So now let's look at how the Iranian illicit economies relate to the state's geopolitical aims, interests and concerns. Iran has been at loggerheads with the West since the revolution of 1979. And at the same time, over the preceding decades, Iran has looked to extend its influence across the region through financing of proxy wars, particularly in Yemen, Lebanon and also in its neighbour Iraq. In 2015, the great powers of the world, including the United States, adopted the JCPOA, more commonly known as the Iranian nuclear deal. And this deal placed significant restrictions on Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. And in the last days of the Obama administration, the JCPOA was implemented. For decades, our differences with Iran meant that our governments almost never spoke to each other. Ultimately, that did not advance America's interests. Over the years, Iran moved closer and closer to having the ability to build a nuclear weapon. But from Presidents Franklin Roosevelt to John F. Kennedy to Ronald Reagan, the United States has never been afraid to pursue diplomacy with our adversaries. And as President, I decided that a strong, confident America could advance our national security by engaging directly with the Iranian government. We've seen the results. Under the nuclear deal that we, our allies and partners, reached with Iran last year, Iran will not get its hands on a nuclear bomb. The region, the United States, and the world will be more secure. But just a few weeks later, there was a new president in the White House with a very different attitude. This is one of the worst deals ever made by any country in history. The deal with Iran will lead to nuclear problems. All they have to do is sit back 10 years and they don't have to do much and they're going to end up getting nuclear. I met with Bibi Netanyahu the other day. Believe me, he is not a happy camper. The Trump administration withdrew from the agreement in 2018, ramping up economic sanctions through a so-called maximum pressure campaign. The Secretary of State Mike Pompeo put forward a 12-point plan outlining US concerns. First. Iran must declare to the IAEA full account of the prior military dimensions of its nuclear program and permanently and verifiably abandon such work in perpetuity. Second, Iran must stop enrichment and never pursue plutonium reprocessing. This includes closing its heavy water reactor. Third, Iran must also provide the IAEA with unqualified access to all sites throughout the entire country. Iran must end its proliferation of ballistic missiles and halt further launching or development of nuclear-capable missile systems. Iran must release all U.S. citizens, as well as citizens of our partners and allies, each of them detained on spurious charges. So with tensions rising between Iran and the U.S. in 2018, 
Nasan Rafferty, the senior analyst at the International Crisis Group, takes up the story. So beginning in May of last year, about a year and a half ago, we started to see Iran respond in two ways. One was on the nuclear front, where Iran said that it would start to curb its compliance with its commitments under the JCPOA. And the second was on the regional front. And we started to see you know, considerably more tension in the Gulf, where we had you know, multiple attacks against commercial shipping. Smoke billows from a stricken ship. But is it a smoking gun? The US says Iran was behind attacks on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. Iran has rejected the US accusations and says its navy came to the aid of one of the ships. Then we had missile attacks against Saudi oil facilities at Aramco, which most countries, certainly the Saudis and the US, blamed on Iran. A twin attack at night with drones on two major Saudi oil facilities, one of them the largest in the world. This was an extraordinary operation, the scale, the method and the impact. We saw a, a string of rocket attacks, mortar attacks against bases hosting U.S. forces in Iraq, which were, were said to be carried out by Iraqi militias linked to Tehran. And all of that simmer started to rise until we got nearly to boiling point in January of this year with the killing of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad in January. In a major escalation in tensions between the U.S. and Iran, the top Iranian general has been killed in an airstrike while leaving the Baghdad airport. At my direction, the United States military eliminated the world's top terrorist, Qasem Soleimani. Shahid Soleimani, in the real sense of the word, is the strongest commander of terrorism in this country. And this is also known as the and Iran's retaliatory missile strikes against Iraqi bases hosting U.S. forces a few days afterward. Iran has launched more than a dozen ballistic missiles at joint U.S.-Iraqi facilities in Iraq. At least two bases have been targeted. One of them is in Erbil and also the Ain al-Assad airbase in Anbar province. Also, Iran's Revolutionary Guard has issued a warning to Israel and other U.S. allies in the region saying they will be attacked if their countries are used for strikes against Tehran. <laughs> So those two elements have been the two sides of Iran's response to the U.S. maximum pressure campaign. The impact of U.S. sanctions has put real economic pressure on the Iranian state. The country is now in its third successive year of recession. Of course, there are legal economic channels available to the state, such as regional trade and the instex mechanism, which allows for humanitarian trade. But aside from these, how does the Iranian state attempt to evade the US maximum pressure strategy? Another way has been that, that, that Iran has tried to circumvent the, the pressure sanctions is by continuing where it can to, um, to continue with its exports of otherwise sanctionable materiel. So we know, for example, that Iran is still reportedly carrying out some oil sales to China, for example, some oil sales to Syria, some oil sales actually to Venezuela, which is, which is an interesting kind of convergence of two countries that are both in their own way under US maximum pressure campaigns. But we still see that, you know, for example, despite the fact that the US stated goal is to bring Iran's crude oil exports down to zero, 
they are substantially diminished from the you know two two and a half million barrels a day that we had before maximum pressure, but they're not quite at nil. They are in the hundreds of thousands, possibly more if if you are able to get a good grip on ghost tankers and tankers that are kind of going under the radar and going through third countries, for example, being blended in in outside of Iran and so on and so forth. So you know you have the formalized channels the trade that is still allowed under various sanctions exemptions and then you have the the links to regional trading partners or to countries like China that that allow Iran to carry on with some modicum of trade despite the US sanctions policy next i wanted to turn to anti money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism issues the financial action task force the FATF who monitor AML and CFT issues around the world said that Iran will remain a high risk jurisdiction until they enact the Palermo and Terrorist Financing Conventions. What are the FATF concerns about AML and CFT issues with Iran? Well, you know, it's funny. One of, one of the issues that Iran's economy writ large has had is that it's absolutely true that sanctions have a significant effect. But the Iranian economy also has its own problems to bear, even if you go back to that window where sanctions had been lifted after the implementation of JCPOA and and when the US left the agreement, there were grumbles in Tehran that banks, in particular European banks or, or major multinational companies, were still somewhat spooked from entering into business with Iran, both, again, partly for the fear of a return of sanctions, but also because Iran, in certain respects, did not have its own house in order in terms of banking regulations, in terms of trade, in terms of concerns over corruption, in terms of concerns over mismanagement. The FATF is a good example of that. Iran had these discussions with the FATF on how to you know, reform its banking sector, for example, reform its finances, sign on to some of the international standards that would be expected for it to function as a, as a healthy banking system. And it made some progress on those. And in other areas, domestically, it proved quite a combustible issue because the, the Rouhani administration, which you know supported the JCPOA, and for them, the JCPOA was you know one of their flagship achievements, was kind of nudging the system into, in Iran to move with these FATF requests so that Iran could be given a, a clean bill of health when it came to its banking system. And some of the, the measures, you know, like the Palermo Convention, passed through the parliament, had the support of the, the Rouhani administration, but ran into quite a bit of roadblocks from other institutions within the Iranian system, including some of the, the bodies that vet the Iranian parliament's legislation. And so what we ended up seeing is, is that the FATF said, look, we've given you quite a bit of time to carry out these reforms that we had agreed to. You have not, we cannot take legislation that has been passed but not enacted as complying with the requests that we have made and basically seeing Iran returned to the, to the so-called FATF blacklist. So the sanctions are, are certainly a burden for the Iranian economy. They're certainly you know, put a lot of Iranian banks out in the cold, but having these, uh, the, these issues around the standards of Iran's banking system, around its compliance with FATF standards, around corruption and mismanagement, those are all issues that are quite systematic burdens that the Iranian economy has to bear. And even if sanctions are removed, will, will be something that uh, domestically we'll, we'll, we have to tackle. 
The president-elect Joe Biden has indicated that he would be interested in re-engaging with the JCPOA, which was of course a major agreement signed under the Obama administration in which he was vice president, providing that Iran returns to compliance with the required commitments. How do you think this is going to play out? I think there are going to be questions of you know, which sanctions are lifted in what sequence and in return for what. It's a little bit tricky to envision some kind of snap of the fingers on the first day of, an, of a Biden administration and, and everything returning to the status quo ante before the US withdrew from the agreement. But at the very least, there would be some sort of move away from a pressure-centric strategy towards some sort of engagement with Iran, with the other members of the nuclear deal, looking to at least stabilize the agreement in the short term, and then, you know, as, as the vice president and his advisors say, use the JCPOA as a floor to start conducting follow-on negotiations with Iran on the nuclear issue, perhaps on regional issues, but as a starting point to, to stabilize the JCPOA and, and come back to the U.S. commitment that the, the Biden administration says the, the Trump administration rashly broke in May of 2018. Indeed, the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, said of Joe Biden's victory that it's an opportunity for the next US government to make up for past mistakes and return to the path of adhering to international commitments with respect to global rules. But there are, of course, two sides in Iran as well. The Supreme Leader Khomeini's English-language Twitter account tweeted, The situation in the US and what they themselves say about their elections is a spectacle. This is an example of the ugly face of liberal democracy in the US. One thing is absolutely clear. The definite political, civil and moral decline of the US regime. Those are the words of the Supreme Leader Khomeini. So I guess we'll be watching to see how this develops over the coming weeks, months and years. Nasan, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. That was Nasan Rafati, the senior Iran analyst at the International Crisis Group. So finally, let's turn back to Alexander Soderholm, who's been looking at this report for us. Given everything we've heard today, Alex, about the future for the current Iranian state and how that impacts the illicit economies within the country, the fundamental question lies with the Supreme Leader, Khomeini, who is now in his 80s. What are the outlooks for Iran post-Khomeini? So I think if we look at the, the recent parliamentary elections, the outlook is unfortunately rather bleak. As a report outlines to an extent, the Council of Guardians, they rejected many of the reformist and moderate candidates who were running for the parliamentary elections earlier this year in favour of conservatives and neocons that now have taken a, a strong hold of the Iranian parliament. And as we've seen really since the US withdrawal from the nuclear deal, conservatives in Iran have again been strengthened and emboldened, taking a grip of the parliament and preparing for a post-Rouhani government when Rouhani's second term comes to an end in 2021. Now, in the absence of dialogue between Iran and the West, and if the EU is unable to shield Iran from US sanctions through INSTEX, for example, I can only see that Iran will move further towards a traditional autocratic state and that the country will look to forge and strengthen relationships with adversaries or critics of the US and the West and look for support from countries such as China and Russia. I think if we talk about the potential for popular unrest within Iran after, after Khomeini passes or concedes power to someone else, 
quite a bit of research has indeed shown that economic crisis, which Iran is facing at the moment, and hunger, which many people are facing as well, are strongly correlated with unrest. However, there comes a point where people are too hungry to protest, too hungry and tired to revolt. And so coupled with the virtual absence of support for the Iranian people when they have voiced their distress, I don't think that we should be putting the onus on the Iranian people to change the government. The Iranian people really need support from the international community in building a roadway for the state to become a part of the international fora. I think what is most likely to happen after Khamenei, and as the report outlines to an extent, is that we're going to see we're going to see an IRGC approved and supported supreme leader because of the fact that the organization has grown so encompassing and so powerful across politics and economics and society in Iran. It really doesn't seem like anyone who isn't approved and who isn't a close ally with IRGC is going to be able to take the helm after Khamenei. Well, look, thank you, Alex, for taking the time to go through this report and lend your expertise to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me on. No problem at all. That was Alexander Soderholm, an international drug policy field researcher with a focus on Iran and the Middle East. It's clear from this podcast that Iran faces challenges both internal and external. First internally, with a ruling elite willing to do just about anything to stay in power, allowing and engaging in corrupt practices, blurring the lines between legal and illegal through state involvement in illicit trades. The state gives those involved in illicit activities who are connected to the ruling elite a free pass exploiting and manipulating the currency trade, engaging in large-scale smuggling of licit and illicit goods and resources, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. While at the same time the state targets already vulnerable and marginalised communities along with illicit supply chains such as the Belush people we heard from earlier in the podcast. And then we have a political system that is becoming increasingly autocratic unaccountable institutions under the supreme leader such as the IRGC have spread like a cancer into all aspects of Iranian society, while at the same time undermining the role of elected state institutions. Now, externally, things may well be about to change. The US presidential election is ushering in a very different diplomatic style and also one of the architects of the JCPOA president-elect Joe Biden. The Biden administration may look to rejoin the JCPOA, lifting the crippling maximum pressure economic sanctions pursued by the Trump administration. But whether this happens soon is unknown and it could be dependent on Iranian behavior across the region. Then finally, Iran will need outward investment. But to join the global economic system, they will need to implement the Palermo and terrorist financing conventions in line with the FATF standards. But behind All of this is the Iranian people, and the author of this report has put it better than I ever could. The Iranian people are caught between the pressures of sanctions and a political economic elite that only cares for its own continuance. Illicit economies are therefore likely to become even more entrenched in Iran in the near future, both as a means of power and enrichment, and as a means of survival. That's it for this episode. A special thank you to Alex, Catherine and Nasan. This podcast was based on the recent paper from the GI Under the Shadow, Illicit Economies in Iran, which is available in the summary to this episode and is also available on our website, www.globalinitiative.net. 
While you're there, you can access loads of other research from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime publications ranging from cybercrime to drug trafficking to environmental crime and corruption. There are also other podcasts available from the GI such as The Faces of Assassination, Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime and The Road to Kyoto. For those joining us for the first ever online 24-hour organised crime conference, I look forward to seeing you there. For those who missed the sign-up, we'll be bringing you plenty of content from the conference over the coming weeks with a brand new podcast series. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Share it around as well. It helps us improve the show and let's be honest, it only takes you a few seconds. You've been listening to Deep Dive, exploring organised crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.